Last week, we, uh, we started a, a, a five-part series on the true story of the whole world. And this is the, the whole big, grand scope of, of what God has done, what God's doing in this world. And if last week gave us kind of some insight into the, the genesis of everything, everything good we see when we look around, a world that's filled with potential and, and made for flourishing, for teaming, a world made from the very overflow of God's love and delight. Uh, this week we, we have a different sort of Genesis story, and it's sort of how that good creation has been corrupted. It's a thread that runs through everything. It's, you know, the environment that, that bears scars of humanity's failure to live selflessly amongst the community of God's creation, all those things God's created. Broken homes and war, violence, suspicion, corruption, coercion. It's our corrupted psyches, a uh, mistaken collective memory of ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves in our group. It's a, it seems like a loop, an endless loop, a downward spiral to destruction and despair. Yeah, if your eyes work well, you look around and you see that the world really is that broken. Uh, I'm, I'm not just being pessimistic here. If you turn on the news, we can see that the world is that broken. And I think in our most honest times, we can look at ourselves, or maybe we can't, and know that we're part of it, right? We're part of the cause. We're sometimes even its victims. But we're part of it. This is the world as we know it. It's God's good world corrupted by sin and death. So we have a pair of short readings today, and I'll, and I'll, I'll read them. Um, they come from uh, the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and Romans 5. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any older wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Then in Romans 5, uh, this is uh, 12 through 19. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the man's trespass, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of one man's sin, for the judgment following trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift flowing or following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. These words describe the problem in their uncertainties. They're about as certain as death and taxes, right? Good creation and a corruption of that good creation. We look in each of these short passages and it diagnoses the problem. At the end of Genesis 2, that last little phrase before it all comes crashing down in Genesis 3, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We often think of shame, especially having to do with our own nakedness, as that guilty feeling. You know, it causes us to retreat. We either, we either isolate ourselves because we don't feel like enough, or we throw ourselves at people or things or careers or distractions so that we don't have to deal with some of the deep-seated sense that we're not good enough or beautiful enough or smart enough or enough, enough. But in the biblical picture, shame is a little different. You see, what Adam and Eve didn't have and then they gained through their disobedience was not that kind of like self-pity, um, insecurity. No, it's more, it's, in the Bible it defines shame more in terms of, of being or feeling abandoned by God. See, like you're strung out on a limb. Like you're hemmed in on all sides by enemies. Like, like you're vulnerable and there's no help coming. Check out uh, Psalm 89 or Psalm 35. Psalm 25 says, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. See, Adam and Eve were with God. They were clothed by His grace, His love, His care, even though they were naked. And when they stopped taking God at His word, and it's that word that said, let there be, that's when things start to unravel. That's when sin enters the world and death along with it. They begin to feel shame for the first time. They cover up. They feel exposed. They know that they're naked. And this, this sin, and, and I love this recent writer um, coined it, sometimes when we think we know words, we need to hear them in a different way to know that we don't really know them. And so he, instead of using the word sin in his book, he, he makes an acronym, but he calls it the human, the human propensity to foul things up. Um, it takes many forms, and, and I just kind of want to trace four of those forms for us. We're prideful. Adam's, Adam and Eve's mistake was pride, right? They thought they knew better than God. And this, God is, is so ironic sometimes. The sad irony for them and for us is, 
is that they elected for what they got. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. They disobeyed God. They, they didn't listen to him. They didn't submit to what God wanted for them, even though it was his care of them. So he backed off a bit. C.S. Lewis um, contends that pride leads to everything else. And pride is the start of it. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. It's pride that has been the, the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. That's what Lewis says. The thing is, part of God's strange mercy, what happens when we trust him as Lord, is that if we ask him to, he'll destroy our illusions of, of who he is, of what he's like, of who we are, and then he'll rebuild it from the ground up. That pride needs to be broken. So following God, more often than not, will hurt our pride. It's a pride we desperately try to protect. The closer you get to God's grace, the more you should be prepared to be scandalized by it. The more and more fragile your pride should get. Our sources of pride, our, our boasts, get fewer and further between and less and less significant compared with who God is and what God's done. And, and I'm, I'm going to trace kind of this dialogue from Romans. In Romans 3, Paul says, where then is boasting? It's gone. And in Galatians 6, he says, may I never boast except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so, for pride, I'm also going to offer these like little Christian life pro tips here for us. Uh, they're not, they're not going to solve it necessarily, but it's, it's how we begin to approach these things. Because sin, even if, even if we follow Christ, you're deluded if you don't think it's going to keep bearing its ugly head at you. So, so my Christian life pro tip for pride is on a very simple level. Do some things that you're not necessarily good at. Be okay with attempting something that you're probably going to fail at. We don't do that. We, we try to shield ourselves by only doing things that we know we can succeed at. But I think if we do this, we'll build up some muscles uh, for pridelessness. Well, pay attention when you do these things and how you feel. And when you feel a bit embarrassed or you don't want to go back and do that again. But then on a grand scale for pridelessness, uh, let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Trust in him to give you everything you need. Don't guard yourself from anything. This will not, this is pretty sure to not pride down. So pride is, is one of our first kind of elemental ways of sinning. Selfishness is another one. We're all, we're all so selfishness. I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know here if we're honest, right? And you can read all sorts of angles on this, right? You can read Darwin or Nietzsche. You can read Marx or Freud. And they're going to come at a world taking shape, controlled by how fit we are physically or psychologically, how we do things to survive, uh, how we will the power for violence and, and coercion and greed, or how sex and our desire shape and, and misshape uh, how we go after the world and rule us. 
you, you can read all those guys, right? All those dead European guys. Uh, or you can become a parent and <laughs> shake your head on a daily basis of how your toddler knew how to do that. Knew how to like do exactly what you didn't want them to do or what they should do for their own good. You, 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 you can have your mind blown at like where this sweet baby of yours turned into this like person with a will of their own. And, and it's normally their mother's fault. <laughs> but Paul understands this like selfishness, this condition. He, he knows it as a flesh. In Romans 8, he tells us that those who live according to that flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, what it wants. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires or wants. So here's my brief Christian life pro tip for self selfishness. Find someone to serve that you don't benefit from. Even someone who's, probably especially someone who's difficult to serve. Do that whole loving your neighbor thing on the other neighbor, the one that you don't get invited over to and they're a good cook. The, the one that takes or the lady that's way too many cats. Like, be a good neighbor to her or him. So if we're prideful and we're selfish, we're also divided, right? We, we often think we know what we want. We think, surely if I knew what to do, I'd just do it, right? Or human beings are rational, right? If, if my coworker knew how annoying he was being, he'd just stop being annoying. If I could just record my wife and play it back to her, she'd know she was wrong and she would just fall on the ground and say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm a goal-oriented person, so just tell me how to love my neighbor as myself. I'll do it. Or, or you hear things like, I'm not an addict, I can quit whenever I want. And that addiction could be alcohol or it could be an iPhone. It could be power, it could be sex. Or, or we fool ourselves, you know, at least once a year, usually at the beginning of the year, we fool ourselves into thinking we can make resolutions and then we're going to have six pack of abs come spring break. You know? But the truth is, uh, and, and the truth that we see from Adam and Eve, and, and as we read in Paul, is that each one of us is a strange mixture of loves and desires. And that's what points us, that's what guides uh, what we do and what we want. And oftentimes these desires are totally mysterious even to ourselves, right? That's, that's a trick. We knew what we want. You know, the, the old TV commercial that I grew up with says, knowing is half the battle, and then the star flies across the screen. Well, the other half is really the battle, right? You know? <laughs> they, they took the easy 50%. In Romans 7, it says, uh, and Paul wrestles with this, like, you know, at times he talks about himself being a boxer beating the air. He says, for I have the desire, and I'm going to mess this up, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. 
this if I do, I do not want to do, and if I no longer, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin in me that does it. It's this dividedness. If I knew I could do it, no, no chance. So the, the Christian-like pro, pro tip for dividedness is, it, it's actually, it's kind of hard because it's not, it's not a magic bullet. It's a, it's a long, slow process. It's developing and picking up some practices, some thick practices, spiritual disciplines, recurring themes, uh, recurring things that form our desires. You know, and in, in, in church history, this, these are spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and solitude, fasting and scripture memorization. It's, it's training in the same way an athlete trains or, or someone in the military trains to be able to do things, to know things, to carry these in our beings in a way that we can't just think of. Our last thing, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list, is that we're enslaved. Sin has this way of capturing us and closing the loop on us. It enlists us, and then it makes us do its bidding. In 1973, there was this bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm sure anyone who's had like intro to psychology knows this example. These two bank robbers rob this bank, and they take... I think uh, four or five people hostage for six days, and by the end of it, the hostages are telling are against the police and aligning with their captors. Uh, one of the hostages had a had a family relationship with one of the captors, and and sin sin does this just just like Stockholm syndrome. It it it's capable of of taking us over and and. and Making us uh, participate in it, you know, we go, we keep going back to sin. We go back, like, like we go back to an abusive spouse, and and we apologize for what sin does to us, or 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 like a like a prostitute that would never dream of a life of doing that. We participate in it, and then we can't even imagine getting out of it. We, the only imagination we have is for things the way they are. Romans 6 says we should no longer be slaves to sin. So any one of us who has died has been set free from sin. So another difficult Christian life enslavement pro tool, and maybe this is the most difficult one, is, is that slavery thrives under a veil of secrecy. You never see a, a brothel with a neon sign. And often the most threatening thing for something that's trafficking our souls is exposure. Scripture speaks of light driving out darkness. So my, my pro tip is to let the Lord into these dark corners and then find someone to light in. Probably not just any someone. You don't just tap someone on the shoulder and unload. Maybe you do, that would be great, but I don't. Um, but you find someone who, who you can trust, and, and you tell them deep, dark fears and realities about yourself, the things that you don't want anyone to know because you think they would not like you anymore. Normally that process of finding that someone, normally it starts with something like coffee, <laughs> like just making a date on a calendar and, and getting to know someone, and, developing that trust. 
but the long result of it is is the kind of exposure that that doesn't let sin enslave. It, it, it's it, it's letting someone be Christ to you and, and being a freed captive. And and the other side of that is be that friend, be that one that someone feels comfortable enough to unload on. Practice being there. You know, uh, it's really hard because. We want to talk, we want to fix. Just practice being there. Practice asking questions when you are going to talk that, that dig deeper. Don't stay here, and this is especially for guys, that strive to become a, an expert on someone else. Pray. Pray with them, pray for them, and invest in their soul. This is a soul investment. So, sorry, this is a pretty bleak outlook on all these things. Sin is inevitable. And sin is terminal. It's real. And we haven't even scratched the surface on the ways that our brokenness are part of a network, a vast network of brokenness throughout all creation. Our environment, our systems, our government, all these good things gone awry, corrupted. Our creation itself groans with labor pains for its liberation from sin and death. And we so often over-theologized the statement, the wages of sin is death, when really it's not hard to see that math playing out in our own lives. We're killing ourselves with pride and selfishness and dividedness and enslavement. We're killing ourselves. But God doesn't believe it that way. See, God's grace, that grace that made us, it doesn't abandon us. It doesn't leave us in the shame of our abandonment, but he clothes us in his mercy. In his son Jesus, we're, we're to clothe ourselves in Christ. Jesus gives us new life and a possibility of reconciliation, of, of forgiveness with God, the God that we walked away from. So, in the next couple of weeks, uh, we could stay on this note forever and, and sing on it and, you know, books have been written that would fill libraries. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig further into God's rescue plan, this, this plan for the reconciliation of the world. And it's through things like, like calling a people to himself, uh, especially a people of sinners that are broken, um, through the cross of Christ that put a monkey wrench into how sin and death work and forgives us. And then how God brings out his new creation uh, through all these things. How Romans 5 uh, that, that we read earlier puts it. For by the trespass of one man death reigned in that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. And so it's my prayer here in Oak Church that as we form and as we grow, that we'll be a community that takes this stuff seriously, that, that mourns sin, that mourns its effects, that, that recognizes sin out there and laments and says that is terrible and the world is not the way it should be. It's broken, it's corrupt. 
but also more interesting in here because <laughs> we're part of it, we're implicated. That's that's one of my prayers. I pray that we find fellowship in the fact that, that we're all part of this disease, but we're cured by Christ and we're part of the cure. And that's again this miracle, this mystery. I pray that we'll like keep good, or at least better, or at least start struggling together in this, in, in honesty, and um, forming those relationships that unmask the kind of isolation that shame causes. And that, that, that this not be a place of shame, because we, we can be near God and feel Him near us. I pray that we're like a testing ground, like a well, a playground, but also like a laboratory of like little experiments of humility and service and selflessness. I, I, I pray um, that Romans 12 prayer that our bodies will be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that we'll learn how not to conform to the patterns of this world, but to, to be transformed with the renewing of our minds. I, I pray that we're going to be in the, the business of breaking bondage of slavery, and stuff that's killing us, that's eating us alive. It will be a place of freedom, thriving, uh, even freedom to fail, you know, and we can do that. And I, I pray that this, this building, the more the people in this building will be hopefully realistic people, you know, like not afraid to painfully be real about how broken things are, but not stuck there, not not fallen into despair, but really hopeful as we grow in how we rely on Christ, uh, as, as we grow in our collective vision for, for uh, cultivating a new life, new creation, and, and, and God's vision for the world's